Welcome back to The Long Short. So, over the coming few months, we'll be bringing something a little different. The Perspective Series in partnership with KPMG. This podcast series will feature conversations with leading CEOs and founders of alternative investment firms from around the world. And today, we're excited to share with you one of a series of conversations we've had with them. Our guests share their visions on a variety of areas, including how to attract and retain top talent in the context of the fierce war for talent, as well as how to navigate the increasingly complex operational scaling challenges and much, much more. The discussions have been led by myself, Tom Kyo, co-host of Amos Long Short, and John Budzina, Managing Director and US National Leader for Market Development for Alternative Investments in KPMG. So sit back, we hope you'll enjoy the show, and thank you for joining us. We're here today with Robert Koningsberg, the CEO of Gramercy Funds Management. Robert, welcome. Thank you very much. Pleased to be here. So, so Robert, you, you, you run a worldwide investment firm in, in, in the New York area. Can, can you tell us a little bit about sort of your background and why did you decide to work in the asset management industry to start with? Sure. Um, I, I kind of came at it from a, a non-traditional approach, if you will. So um, when I was studying undergraduate, um, studies. I studied political science and history of, of Latin America. Um, and when I was graduating in the uh, kind of mid to late 1980s, um, I was also asked to do a, a, an honors thesis. And when I looked around, you know, where are the opportunities for jobs in Latin America and what are the, the dominant themes, you know, unfortunately or, or fortunately for me, it was really all about, you know, the debt crisis at the time, the Latin American debt crisis, um, the lost decade, what have you. So, um, I spent my time on my thesis working on the uh, historical origins and implications of the Latin American debt crisis. Um, and through that, um, I met an individual who had been the finance minister of Peru. He'd been the head of Wells Fargo International. He had lent it, he had borrowed it, and he had defaulted on it. So um, really well positioned with this small boutique and emerging markets kind of dealing with the resolution of the Latin American debt crisis. And as we finished those resolutions, that was really the beginning of emerging markets fixed income as an asset class because a bunch of defaulted loans became bonds and then there was an index that was created. So that's kind of how I um, meandered over to the asset class, so to speak. Interesting. And obviously you have, you've had a long successful career. Are there any like special defining moments in your career that you would speak to in, in terms of pursuing this investment strategy and things that have been successful for you? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, the, the, the early part of my career, it was, you know, explicitly financial advisory, kind of working with these countries and kind of putting Humpty Dumpty back together again um, after he'd fallen off the wall. Um, kind of, you know, mid-career, if you will, was like I started working for banks, running the capital positions of the banks in emerging markets, but then also advising our, our, our clients on um, how to successfully invest in emerging markets. And I'd say the defining moment for me was, you know, kind of at the end of my career um, with the banks, you know, on, on the sell side, when I realized a lot of conflicts of interest within these these banks, and it's really hard to just be a pure representative of an investment position when you have other departments of that institution, investment banking, research, um, et cetera. Um, I recall sitting in a debt restructuring when I was at Merrill Lynch. The Russian uh, Federation was the was the obligor, and I remember thinking of Russia as the obligor. Yet sitting to my left, they had sent someone sit next to me from investment banking. They were already thinking of them as the client. So, the the defining moment for me, for me was when 
I realized, you know, doing debt restructurings, doing, you know, investing in emerging markets from a, a platform that has conflicts of interest is not for me. Um, and that was a decision to set up Gramercy where we're just solely focused on getting the best outcome for, for our clients without having to worry about the, the institutional constraints, if you will. So let's talk a little bit about Gramercy then. Um, the firm that you established, I, I guess it's 25 years ago uh, you established the firm. And what your goals were at the time and what they are now, have they changed since then, over 25 years? Sure. You know, I, I again, I think 25 years ago, our our goal was quite simple, and that was to build an investment management firm dedicated to emerging markets, one that would be conflict-free and simply focused on the best outcome for our clients. Um, and over the 25 years, you know, we have, you know, evolved what we're doing, but, you know, our, our mission today is, is similar to what it was back then, which is quite simply just to have a positive impact on the well-being of our clients, our portfolio investors, and our team members alike. And, and how do we think about doing that? You know, we need to make sure that we're a top performer, that we're meeting our clients' absolute and, and relative performance expectations. Uh, we focus on the six Ps, you know, that performance is the sum of, a, of our platform and our people and our purpose and our products and profits and, and that we need to be a perpetuity. And um, as my partner, Mohammed likes to say, you know, performance isn't everything, but without it, we have, have nothing. And of course, we have to have a diverse and collaborative meritocracy uh, with a culture of, of, of empowerment and accountability. And really important for, for our industry is, you know, we need to make sure that we have no non-recoverable mistakes, you know, uh, that there can be no new legacy positions. Um, and if we can do all that, then we'll be able to deliver upon um, our mission. And can you then provide an overview of the investment strategy at Gramercy? As you say, central to that is is emerging markets, but there are a number of different types of strategies that you incorporate. So, so, so first of all, we are emerging markets. That's that's you know pretty much all we do, and that's all we've done for our entire careers for you know 25 years as a as a team and, and 35 plus years as as individuals. Um, we're focused on emerging markets credit, both public and private credit, um, and we do it through the lens of having a a multi asset firm. And to us, you know, we feel advantaged to have the depth and breadth to have all the major return streams within emerging markets. So today, what we have are kind of traditional or is traditional fixed income, long only emerging market debt. We have our opportunistic hedge funds, if you will. We have private credit or asset backed lending in emerging markets. And we also have special situations within emerging markets. And then super powerful on top of that is we have a multi-asset single best idea approach where we can kind of build portfolios that can tactically move around these um, these, these return streams. And so for us, we have the ability to you know, start with a blank piece of paper, tailor make uh, strategies and portfolios for our clients. We can partner up at the top on a multi-asset uh, basis. But then we could also partner on any of the individual strategies that we manage. I mean, there's a lot of discussion right now in the emerging markets valuations area that around the topics of deglobalization and how that might impact um, your investment strategy. Um, and, and obviously, volatility impacts so many things these days. Yeah, a lot, a lot to impact there. I mean, one is around valuation, and we can talk about that. Where are we in the midst of valuation? I mean, we're just coming out of this 2022 Russia-Ukraine 
higher interest rate dislocation and and you know there's been a series of major dislocations in emerging markets over 25 years and this one rivals any of those and, and we can certainly talk talk more um, about that um, but in terms of this this theme of deglobalization I mean I think that's that's an important theme which is is globalization reversing are we deglobalizing is it on pause uh, you know quite frankly this state of quote deglobalization kind of reminds me of where we started, which was really um, emerging markets was never, you know, intended to be this homogeneous asset class. It was a bunch of individual countries that you had to have expertise. Um, deglobalization means regionalization. It means clubs. It means borders. It means developing expertise and presence in all these regions in different countries. You know, for us, that approach has been via platforms that we have in, in, in all of these, not all of these, but in many of these countries and certainly all of these regions. You know, we, we, we like to use the term global, that, you know, we need to be global and local um, at, at the same time. So, Robert, where are we then in, in the present emerging market cycle? Where do you see value for investors that are willing to allocate to emerging markets? There's cycle and value, which which I'll unpack. Um, in terms of, of of kind of the cycle, where are we? And, and as I indicated before, I think over the past 25 years, we've had kind of 11 major dislocations in emerging markets credit. Um, and that becomes the end of one cycle and the beginning of another. Um, and it's important to realize where you are in that cycle because you know if, if you're too close to the end, then you need to be more protective. And if you've just gone through the end and the beginning of the others, um, it's, a, it's a rosier um, outlook. When you look at these 11 dislocations, they all have had different factors, but they've looked similar in terms of the quantum. So they all dropped about 20%. It took about five months peak to trough. Seven, eight months later, they're up about 27%. And on average, 12 to 24 months later, they're up 30 to 50%. So 2022 was clearly one of those dislocations in emerging markets, You know, down low 20%, depending on what um, index you were looking at. And we've started uh, we've started that recovery, and I think this cycle looks the most like Mexico '94 '95, which was a long drawn out dislocation and a long recovery, and I think it looks similar to that because there were two things that created the dislocation back in there, two distinct things or materially that created that dislocation in '94 '95, and that was the Fed raising rates and some idiosyncratic risk in Mexico around um, the peso crisis and, and what have you. So 22-23 feels similar to us. We've had some recovery, but we think there's a lot of recovery left um, within the, the marketplace today. Where do we see value? That means that, that you know, emerging market debt itself you know, has become cheap, but we don't want to buy it as a index. We don't want to passively go after it. So today where we see value is distinctly in uh, what we call high conviction emerging market debt, and that's a combination of some of the high yield names that are out there. Um, certainly, with the dollar, you know, dollar having peaked, you know, certain local markets within emerging markets make sense. But then, where we see a lot of value is in private credit or asset back lending in emerging markets. And uh, with rates higher, we're able to get higher rates. Uh, but there's been a crowd out. You know, if you look in a lot of these markets. Um, local banks, foreign banks aren't lending the way they used to. We're at that part of the credit cycle outside of emerging markets. So the ability to get outsized returns that, that give you higher return, less risk because you get uncorrelated collateral. Um, and of course, you give up a little bit of liquidity 
but we think there's a tremendous amount of value there. And, and we like to think that that's the kind of the special sauce of the multi-asset portfolios that we're building. And, and there's a variety of opinion about the topic of China and whether that is investable. People have different views on the matter. So what is, what is your view and the view of Gramercy on that? We think that investability is always a, a function of price, right? So, um, you know, you can enter a place like China, if we're talking about bonds at par, um, and we would say from a par perspective, we're definitely not China bulls, right? Uh, there's lots of challenges for uh, par investments in China, uh, but when you start thinking about highly distressed sectors that have low initial entry prices, uh, we become much more bullish. Um, and one example of that today is is the property development market, uh, the property sector within China. There's been all sorts of you know horrendous things written about it, uh, but quite frankly, all that's captured in the five to ten ten cent price that you can enter today. Um, and when we look at China property bonds today, they trade at five to ten cents. They're trading below published liquidation values that accounting firms have put together. Yet none of these firms, or I should say the ones that we're focused on out of the hundred, maybe the six or seven that we're focused on, none of them are talking about liquidation. They're all talking about restructuring, kind of classic Gramercy stuff, take the old def defaulted bond, put it through a box and get something new on the other side. And quite frankly, this sector is just too important for China's recovery. It's like 30% of GDP. So not China bulls, top down, bottoms up, we're bullish about a couple of sectors. Yeah, I've heard you reference it to the subprime crisis in the U.S. in 2007-8, right? Yeah, I mean, you know, the uh, the property market, you know, I think it's it, it's akin to the U.S. and maybe 9 and 10 forward. So going into 7 and 8, China looked very similar to the United States. But now you're starting to see, um, similar to the U.S., TARP, if you will, the troubled asset uh, program. You're starting to see that type of approach in China today. Um, and again, you know, when you're talking about five, 10 cent bonds that have already published debt restructurings that have imputed yields of 50% plus, you know, do we think they're going to recover at par? No, but could that five cent bond be 15, 20, 25? Uh, absolutely. And I've, I've read as well, um, if, if, if I'm correct, that you've held investments in Russia and the Ukraine. Um, so what's your take on the situation there with regards to investing in either of these regions sure and, and to be clear you know we you know we're proud of the fact that that we held neither russia or ukraine sovereign when russia invaded in in, in 2022 um, and for us it was pretty simple analysis if you go back to i think it was december january um our our analyst petar came in to the to the ic and he said you know i think there's a 40 percent chance that that russia will invade ukraine I'm not sure if it will be a capital I or a small I invasion, and I think prices will drop 10 cents. And we're like, well, you just said coin toss, and with all due respect, if they invade, it's not going to drop 10 or 20 cents. It's probably going to drop 50, 60, or 70. So we looked at the prices of Ukraine at the time. They were trading at 80. Um, so no invasion, maybe they go up 10. Invasion, they drop 60. So that didn't make sense. So we sold that. Uh, and the same thing with Russia. You know, trading at 100 plus. No invasion, maybe it stays there. Uh, invasion, maybe drops 50, 50 plus. So in February of 22, we had no Russia or no Ukraine. Today, you know, Russia remains, it's uninvestable. You asked about China. Russia is clearly uninvestable. And I'll say it's, it's legally uninvestable because we can't invest in Russia 
um, due to the OFAC restrictions, but it's more than just legally uninvestable. Uh, we have a hard time, you know, if we were able to invest in Russia, being able, you know, being comfortable doing so, because quite frankly, even before this uh, this revolt that we had uh, or uprising or whatever you want to have called a couple weeks ago in Russia, uh, it's not clear to us what a post-Putin Russia looks like. And if you don't know what a post-Putin Russia looks like, then how can you start to think about investing there? Um, and it reminds me of of the days of Yeltsin when you know, Yeltsin would get sick and you would get a call that he was, you know, in the hospital. And depending on which hospital he was in, you could invest or not invest because if he was in the cardiac hospital, you had no clue what would come next in, in Russia. And if he was just um, sobering up, then, you know, perhaps it was investable. But it's really hard to understand and discount um, and factor what a post-Putin Russia looks like, but also how a post-Putin Russia might be treated by the West. You know, one, there's this whole debate about, you know, $400 billion reserves that are that are tied up and what will happen to that. You know, the um, I guess the uh, the investability of Russia in the future is going to be highly dependent on what happens with that $400 billion. Um, but also, how is the West going to treat Russia? Right. And we think about, you know, will it look like Germany after World War One, where it was just determined that, that that Germany was a bad place and should be ostracized? Or will it look like Germany after World War II, which is, you know, um, you know, the Russians are good people. They just had bad leadership and we need to 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 re-embrace Russia. You know, it's not that long ago Russia was in the G8. So uh, we would say today it's just uh, uninvestable legally and uninvestable otherwise. On Ukraine, you know, we're comfortable that, you know, there'll be a recovery of probably 15 to 35 cents. Um, so when it's traded lower, we'll, we're tactically involved. However, we kind of suspect there might be a higher haircut than others because it might not be tr truly just about debt sustainability, but the politics around putting Ukraine back together again and what, what the G7 may require. Um, it reminds me of Poland and Bulgaria in 93, 94, when the G7 gave 50% haircut to both, not because either of them needed debt, debt relief, but they were such important buffers at the time when the wall had fallen that uh, they wanted to err on the side of making sure that private creditors created enough room for them. KPMG is a global professional services firm providing audit, tax, and advisory services to many of the world's leading alternative investment management firms. To address the specific challenges and opportunities unique to alternative investments, KPMG has dedicated practitioners focusing on hedge fund, private equity, and real estate organizations. Our professionals devote their time to provide innovative and strategic solutions to alternative investment managers in areas ranging from strategy to operational and compliance functions. Through the knowledge of the industry-leading practices and customized technology systems, they provide advice and support that deliver value to these organizations and their investors. For more information, please visit kpmg.com. So, so Robert, just if we could move the conversation um, to another important asset, um, and that is the people that you surround yourself with. Uh, you mentioned earlier the the six P's and um, people being a very important part of the overall platform, and you can't have performance without great people. And so, the question is, how, how do you attract and retain the best people for your firm? So, first of all, I'd say that that attracting and retaining talent is more than just compensation. And of course, we align ourselves with the, you know, 
the financial success of the firm with that of the team, but more is required. Um, and certainly purpose is required, and I think our mission is important to, to our clients. Um, but having a meaningful career, right? It's like getting paid well is not enough. Um, and so we have something called GCM, Gramercy Career Management. And, you know, we're a very strategic firm. We've, you know, we've had, we have a series of uh, strategic offsites for the firm where we set our vision for three, four years at a time. Um, and we call that the castle on the hill. Like, this is where we are and this is where we're trying to get to. Well, we do the same thing with our employees. So when we have a vision for the firm, then we ask them, we say, how, how do you simultaneously contribute to the vision of the firm and move your career in the desired direction? And all of a sudden, you know, it creates a dialogue for creating agreement on what the next step looks like for somebody and what they need to do and what we need to do to prepare them for that. And remember, you know, we want to be a perpetuity. You know, one of the one of the great things about boutique asset management firms is we can put out outsized returns. We're nimble. You know, one of the challenges are, you know, people want to make sure that you're going to be around. Like nobody questions whether BlackRock is going to be around in, in 25 years. So we, you know, our, our ability to perpetuate ourselves is with that alignment. It's with that Gramercy career management. It's making sure that people have meaningful careers and they see themselves advancing here. That, that's ultimately, you know, how we think about attracting and retaining talent. So clearly culture is very important to you when, when attracting and retaining talent, right? Absolutely. And, you know, culture for us, um, you know, w- one of the, uh, the cool things about 25 years is, you know, we have elements of our culture that were there the very first day when there was three of us in a loft in the Grand Rousey Park. But then we've had to evolve that, 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 uh, that culture over time. And, and what do I mean? You know, since the early days, our culture's always felt like a family. Um, and, you know, the cool thing about families, families certainly have their challenges, but, you know, the best way for us to have a positive impact on the well-being for our clients is to make sure that we're, we're nurturing and pushing our family um, at the same time. So family is a big part of our, of, of our culture. But as we've, as we've grown, you know, we have to make sure that, you know, we have this diverse meritocracy and that we're a family that's holding each other accountable. Um, and you know again the, the 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 predominant word we hear is is family for for better or worse and you know families have uh have good conversations and difficult conversations but um it's what's kept us together for 25 years and a direct consequence of the covid-19 pandemic has seen businesses having to be more flexible with with their employees regarding the way that they work including an option to work remotely um, and some firms have been trenchant in their view requesting staff to return to the office full-time. Where, where do you stand in this debate, Robert? You know, I guess the, uh, the buzzword is hybrid. So like many, um, you know, we've settled on, on, on kind of the hybrid. But when you unpack that, you know, for us, investment management, we believe that proximity really matters, that people need to be close to each other, that there needs to be a flow of information, that, that spontaneous collaboration matters, that, you know, something starts as just a few ideas and, and we encourage people to have ideas that aren't necessarily fully fully thought out or researched before they start discussing them uh, and that's very difficult to happen when you're not in the office and when you're just um, on zoom you know and I, I often say you know that, that that god invented a trading desk so that information could free flowly and that that mentorship could be constantly ongoing so you know i, I recall i think the best investment that we that we did in 2021 
it almost didn't happen. And I remember being in the office in December of 2020, everybody's locked down. Uh, one of our lawyers was here and, and, and Thomas said to me, you know, RK, it's what a shame we, we, we can't do that investment in Mexico. And I'm like, what are you talking about? And he, so he, he told me about it. He said, well, you know, my boss said that, you know, we, we couldn't raise capital for it. I said, never heard of it. So we went from that, you know, spontaneous conversation to the single best investment that we did in 2021 based upon Thomas and I just happened to be in the office at the same time. So hybrid's the word for us. Um, we have our whole team together Tuesday through Thursday. Um, I don't understand when people say, well, some groups are together on Monday and some are together on Tuesday. For us, it's about the whole firm being together, the whole family, three days a week. Five days may be too much, but zero days is definitely um, not a deal for us. So, and Robert, as the, as the investment industry evolves, um, the, the, the skill sets, the, 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 the type of folks that uh, are successful uh, at, at a hedge fund, what do you look for in terms of research analysts, data analysts, candidates? How has that changed uh, or, um, and, and how do you compete with others in the industry for the talent? I'd start by saying that, that we prefer candidates and look for candidates that, that have an, an obvious interest and background in what we do. And that may sound you know, r ridiculously obvious, but you know, there's so many folks that you have to weed out that are just kind of, just want to try something out, right? Um, so we're looking for people that have experience in emerging markets elsewhere. They're dedicated to a career in our space. They're looking for a career, not a job. Um, you know, recent MBAs tend uh, to me, tend to be somewhat confused, and they're professional wanderers, which is not great for us. So, I mean, we're, we're you know, we're a boutique, we're relatively small, it's hard for us to think about, let's go out and hire a bunch of MBAs and uh, who are generalists, uh, who weren't sure, um, you know, a lot of MBAs go back to school because they're trying to figure out what they want to do, not that they don't necessarily have the skill set to do it. So, we found that's not necessarily a great fit for us. So, we like to go to to, to banks and you know we, we find a lot of talent in the local markets themselves so uh, that helps us in terms of creating more you know, a more diverse team uh, it gets us presence you know in those different markets um, but it's people that 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 are dedicated and want to be there to begin with and when we look at the overall uh, industry we also see many of the leaders of the industry that began in the 80s and 90s and the early 2000s, beginning to uh, step down um, and gets this idea of succession planning. Um, when you look at the industry, are we approaching a generational change? Um, how do firms deal with succession? Uh, you know, I think it's been a lot of, a big challenge for a lot of firms. And, and, and quite frankly, I mean, it, it's, it's been one of the head scratchers for me um, in the hedge fund industry that, that so many hedge funds haven't really thought about and focused on next gen and they think of it more as an annuity how long will that first gen be around and less of a perpetuity um, and to me that seems like you know not only bad business but um, somewhat unfair to to the to the other constituents around the firm and and what i mean by that is if you're an investor you really want to invest in a firm that you're not sure when the when the annuity's up right, when they're done, when they're going to go family office. Um, and the same thing for an employee. I mean, who wants to work for a firm that doesn't intend to be around forever? I mean, what type of career is that? So we're focused on, on being a perpetuity, not an annuity. Um, that means that we need to perpetuate ourselves. 
Um, we can't simply disappear because the first generation is no longer around. Um, and quite frankly, that can be because they've retired and they don't want to be around, and it could be an unfortunate event that they, you know, got 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 hit by a bus or what have you. So we need to de-risk Gramercy for our clients and our employees alike. Uh, you know, we're aligned with our employees in the short term. We've talked about that a little bit, uh, but we have plans in place with funding secured to transition to the next gen to the extent that the first gen um, gets hit by a bus, or hopefully that we. Um, just get to uh, slowly move out of the business someday. So can you elaborate on, on what that strategy is? Then you've been very open discussing your firm's leadership strategy. So what, what is it? What have you done? Let, let's think about the, uh, you know, the unplanned departure, right? So the, the hit by the, the, the bus scenario. And you know, quite frankly, you know, when we went out and we spoke with a, a lot of legal firms and investment banks and what have you, and we said, look, what's the off-the-shelf um, succession plan and none of them had it so we kind of had to had to come up with us ourselves and we said look the two biggest risks you know that the two biggest things that we need to solve for at uh, the event of disassociation if you will is is one um re, you know one is the estate right the the um that can be really disruptive when it's not pre-wired how the estate is going to roll out of the partnership um, and also to have the funding available for that. And at the same time, you know, uh, it's, you can only imagine what, what it's like to be for an employee where, you know, one of the senior partners or the founder of the firm is, has been hit by a bus. You know, they've probably got resumes out pretty, pretty quickly. So we needed to solve for, 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 for those two issues. So we did it by, you know, defeasing that outcome with, with, a, with a large amount of, um, of life insurance, of key man insurance. And with that, with those proceeds, we're, we're able to one strike a deal with the estate, which is here's some money now to de, you know to de-risk this for you, and then take the some of that money and pay retention bonuses for those that are the next gen leaders, so that they understand one they've they, there's capital here, two some of that capital has been used to completely de-risk the firm, get rid of all the debt, pay off the um, the uh, capital accounts and, and and what have you, but now here's a retention bonus. And by the way, um, in addition to the retention bonus, you'll be buying out the estate over time on the balance of what wasn't funded with the uh, with the life insurance. So we try and solve for those issues and create alignment through an ecosystem that will perpetuate the firm. Um. So let's talk then for for a um for a few moments about the the mega trends that are impacting the asset management industry and the world at large. Um, the biggest mega trend that we're talking about in this series, and it's one that folks are constantly opining on, is the growing influence of technology. Uh, and specifically here, we're talking about the influence of technology, AI, and and its its role and its increasing role um, across our sector, but also across civilization. What's your view on artificial intelligence? I'll start or stay more focused on what it means for the industry and what it might mean for for our firm. First, I would say that you know we don't fear AI, but we but we're really curious and we want to seek to understand how it might help us deliver upon our mission. We suspect that it might level the playing field for us vis-a-vis larger investment firms. When we start thinking about coding and and and, and what have you, you know, technology and and programming. It's 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 certainly early innings. That's for sure. But it's a theme that we're clearly paying attention to and, and, and we can't ignore. And, you know, I think um, seeing 
Ken Griffin and Citadel go out and try and get licenses for their entire firm is probably supportive of this notion that um, one needs to uh, to be focused on it. And how soon do you think that um, the industry will embrace AI? Um, how do you see it affecting the broader asset management industry and the investment approach that you might take? Look, I think I think a lot in the um, the industry are approaching it and probably are embracing it, I think is the word. Um, so they're probably embracing it by not rejecting it, but I'm not sure that, you know, it's far enough along where people can just rely upon it um, blindly. And outside of our industry, we've seen some of the disasters of AI. You know, I'm thinking about the legal industry where, you know, lawyers have actually gone and had arguments, you know, completely crafted by AI, and it refers to cases that didn't even exist or what have you. You know, when I've done AI of my own background, it says, you know, I went to Brown, I didn't go to Wharton or whatever it may be. So uh, I think at this stage, it's really dangerous to, to, to rely upon it. But at the same time, I think it would be dangerous for our industry to ignore it, uh, both the benefits that it might create and the challenges that it might create in the future. And of course, um, when we think about AI, we also think about generative AI and the various tools out there, OpenAI, ChatGPT. Um, and and the influence that they may have on the investment approach and the operations of the asset management industry. Um, do you do you look at that um, at your firm? Is that something that you think you are likely to explore going forward? What do you see in terms of the impact on a wider asset management industry using these tools or not using these tools? I think it's early. Um, we embrace the notion that we have to pay attention to it, but not blindly follow it and explore. Um, where it may be useful and where it may not be useful. Um, again, you know, when I think about emerging markets and, and what we do in our industry, uh, I'll go back to the question on uh, the work week. You know, I, I just think that proximity matters, that primary research matters. You know, when I think about some of the best investments that I've made in my career, it's because I actually made the time to go on the trip, look the person in the eye, see the body language, um, et cetera. I don't think AI is ever going to do that. Um, and I can tell you, you know, some of the worst investments I made is when I didn't take the time to do that trip. I wasn't able to read the things that humans read, like body language and intuition and what have you. So, you know, um, I have a 12, uh, HP 12C on my desk. That's a great tool for investing. I don't, you know, rely upon it solely. Um, I imagine that AI will continue to develop to be a tool for the investment management industry, but certainly not one that we should rely on. Now, you have a particularly interesting perspective on ESG and sustainable investment, particularly given uh, the strategy that you have and the fact that you are involved in emerging market private debt. Um, what, what can you tell our listeners about that and how you um, view ESG and sustainable investment through the lens of these strategies? I'd start with, for, for us, ESG always has been and, and has to remain genuine approach, right? That um, I think a lot of the investment management business have just been quick to try and, you know, check the box on on ESG. Uh, and for us, you know, quite frankly, we just look at ESG as part of the investment um, analysis, part of our process. And by that, I mean, we have found over many years that if, if, if an investment is a, has a better ESG ranking, even before ESG was a thing, right? G governance, right? Um, that the higher rating that somebody has in the ESG world, the better credit they are. Um, and those that have low ESG credits, uh, you know, uh, scores have proven to be really difficult credits. So for us, it's just an integral part of the um, 
the, the investment process, when we have an investment committee, we're just talking about ESG, not because it's the last thing we have to check the box on, but because it's an integral part of, of the obligor understanding the business and understanding the risk of the business. Because again, a low ESG score is a low risk to somebody's business. Number two, we've evolved our approach to ESG um, over time. So I think, you know, early on it was ESG 1.0 for us and it was trying to triage where where an institution may be and having some sort of cutoff for the provision of capital, i.e. if they didn't reach a certain level, then um, you would you know, not make the investment, you know, take the filter approach. Or, um, and we found that, you know, with our ESG 2.0, we're trying to use our capital to make change. Um, and we found that, you know, the minute that you say no to someone because of ESG, you have no impact. But if you say, yes, contingent pre uh, condition precedent on some of these ESG enhancements, um, then you're dancing. So we've gone from this, you know, use, you know, uh, exclude people because of ESG to try and use our ESG capital to be um, inclusive. Uh, and we found that, you know, that's how you have a bigger impact. And then lastly, I would say, you know, ESG in developed markets means something very different than in emerging markets. And, you know, in developed markets, it, I think it still tends to be a bit of a 1.0 approach, which is, you know, is someone an eight or a nine and can you maybe make them a nine or a 10, uh, which is impact, but the marginal impact is a lot less than in emerging markets where, you know, we maybe can take a two and turn them into a five or try to take a four and turn them into a seven. Uh, whereas what impact are we going to have if we just say no to a four? And so, Robert, you know, when you look at the hedge fund industry, structurally recently, many firms, many of these alternative investment firms are establishing themselves as multi-strategy platforms. I mean, you, what you described before was interesting because you almost do similar within the context of emerging markets. Um, so is, is that the prototype for the industry ahead? You know, I'm, I'm not sure about for the industry or, or alt firms generally, but but for us in emerging markets, you know, it is the optimal way to invest, right? It's like, like why wouldn't you want to have more depth and more breadth or more tools in the toolbox um, to be able to build portfolios than to just be stuck as a, as a one-trick um, pony? So for us, um, multi-asset, if you give us a blank piece of paper, and when we say multi-asset, we're really talking about multiple return streams within uh, credit in, in emerging markets. We'll use equity opportunistically, but it's not a big part of, you know, we're not a traditional multi-asset firm. Uh, but if if uh, given a blank piece of paper, we're going to take a multi-asset approach because, you know, I think one of the mistakes that people have made in emerging markets over the years, and they've had a bad experience because of it is, one, we talked about the cycles. So they tend to invest after the big recovery because some consultants told now's the time after 30 to 50% which is not, you know, not great. You're supposed to buy low and sell high, but um, they pick one return stream um, and they stick with that return stream. So they take US dollar or local and they ride it up and down through that cycle. And then they wake up in five or 10 years and they go, it hasn't been a great ride. With multi-asset, you have the ability to tactically move around the different return streams because value and relative value changes. And oh, by the way, at the same time, we found that these different return streams in emerging markets really are uncorrelated, which is hard for people to believe because 25 years ago, emerging markets was kind of an overflow asset class. It was kind of risk on or risk off. Well, you know, 
beta may be going up or down and private credit may be doing something different. And then you have special situations and you have opportunistic credit, both that's systemic in and idiosyncratic in nature, you put all that together in the in, in the toolbox, it's pretty powerful. And do you find that strategy, I guess you're going to say yes, that this is a strategy and an approach that investors are more accepting of? You know, they're they're accepting of it, but I think one of the one of the challenges investors have um, is that they're bucket heads. And what I mean by that is, you know, multi-asset doesn't you know multi-asset generally doesn't necessarily bucket because these investors are set up with were were fixed income or were equities were public equities were private equities were public debt were private debt so when you take this you know blank blank sheet of paper approach um, it doesn't necessarily connect with a lot of institutions because they're trying to figure out the bucket um, those that have that bucket or have the approach to be Kind of more top down about their portfolio it's it's certainly resonated and when i think about our multi-asset you know portfolios um we have some of the largest most sophisticated sovereign wealth funds in the world invested in them and at the same time we have um high net worth and rias in the same vehicle so pretty powerful um we've been asking our guests to provide a score from a scale of one to five as to how optimistic they are about the prospects for the hedge fund industry over the coming five years. So where would you scale your level of optimism for the industry then? You know, I, 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 the challenge I have with the industry is that the strategies that are in that industry are, are quite broad. So to take the whole industry and kind of throw a one to five rating at it, I think is, is, is challenging. You know, that being said, you know, again, within our industry, within emerging markets, I'd say the, the prospects for alternative strategies are quite high, four or five. Um, we're moving away from beta you know, if you can move away from beta and kind of anchor yourself in private credit and and opportunistic, which means sometimes it's there and sometimes it's not there, um, it's quite strong. And you know, I think you know, EM is 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 not a place for the passive investor. You know, when I think about, we started the firm 25 years ago, and the index wanted us to have 18% of our capital in Argentina when we were already writing research that Argentina was about to default. And you can say, okay, well, that was 25 years ago. Well. 2022, if you passively were involved in Russia and Ukraine, I think it cost your portfolio over 800 basis points of absolute um, performance. So where, where do you see then the, the biggest opportunities or the greatest tailwinds for the industry over the coming five years? Yeah, so I think there, you know, for, for the industry, I would say, you know, the tailwinds are <clears throat> kind of the, the, the FOMO or TINA for, for passive investing may have peaked, you know, with the... Um, the way markets behaved in 2022 with quantitative tightening, with uh, higher rates, um, you know, we're starting to see that, that alternatives are an important tool in the portfolio toolbox, which was hard for people to remember when we were in quantitative easing, lower rates, you know, lower forever, um, and it was, it was harder to, to differentiate against beta. Uh, the headwinds for the industry, you know, I think that the barriers to to, to entry are quite high, much higher than when we started in 1999. We started with uh, $4 million in, in, in our first fund. Uh, today, you know, I think it's hard to get a, a, a launch done for less than 100, 250, 500. Uh, and that's because, you know, the, the regulatory barriers are high. The cost of, of the regulatory barriers are quite high. The minimal capital that's necessary to, to maintain a platform uh, 
today. I mean, again, 25 years ago, you could be a couple of individuals sitting in a conference room with a couple of Bloomberg's cranking out returns, and then you hired an accountant to put out K-1s, much more complicated than that today. Um, and it's expensive. And, you know, one of the challenges in the industry today has been uh, decompression. So clients and regulators are requiring more and more, and the industry is getting paid less and less for that. That's a, That's certainly a headwind. And so then what would your advice be for those that are getting into the industry anyway? And, you know, so how would you, what kind of advice would you give them if they're going to start a hedge fund today? I mean, I think, you know, a, a couple of things. I mean, one is, one is patience. You know, I think, I think the hedge fund industry got a little bit lazy over the years in terms of, uh, or spoiled, I should say, in terms of, you know, there was all this notion like I can leave, I can leave a big investment bank. Someone's going to give me a billion dollars and I'm off and, off and running, you know, starting a hedge fund, starting an, an, a, an alternative investment management firm, it's like starting any other business, right? It's, um, it's, it's your, there's an entrepreneurial aspect and it's not just about running portfolios. It's about creating and perpetuating a business. Um, and that takes time, that takes patience, that takes uh, perseverance. Um, so, you know, there's a lot of, you know, there's been a lot of um, success and even more failure in this industry. And a lot of that failure comes from, I just don't think people have the mindset of, of what it takes to be an entrepreneur in this, in this industry. So in, in the remaining few minutes of this episode, then, um, could I ask you to talk a little bit about the philanthropic efforts being carried out by Gramercy? I can see on your website that you're involved in two initiatives, maybe perhaps more, the Right to Dream, as well as the Crystal Ray Mentorship Program. What can you tell our listeners about these? First of all, we, uh, we have a tremendous amount of gratitude for, for the success that, that we've had over the past 25 years. We're always looking for for ways or means to kind of share that success, but to do so with institutions that we think we can truly have an impact. And, um, you know, oftentimes we say no to very large institutions that um, certainly have impact, but we're not sure that, that we at Gramercy with our time and our talent and our treasure uh, can, can have an impact. So we're always looking to kind of filter it down to where can our capital, where can our time um, make a difference? And, you know, currently, you know, where we're most focused is, as you mentioned, Right to Dream and uh, Crystal Ray. You know, Right to Dream is is helping talented soccer kids from Africa, you know, basically come to the United States, study at boarding schools, then move on to college, both on a scholarship. But then we've been really focused on how do we mentor them away from soccer, because soccer's been, it's been the uh, it's been the journey, but it's not the destination for the for 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 many of the kids. So, um, how do you manage that that um, varsity coach in college? Um, how do you get that first internship? How do you put a a resume together? So, a lot of our focus at Grammarly has been later stage with Right to Dream, and we call it Mentor the Dream. You know that uh, uh, once they get out of high school, they're kind of lost. Um, and similar with Krista Ray, Krista Ray focuses on. Um, Kids, are, you know, Chris Ray is a high school, um, and again, when they when they graduate high school, they've, they've been super successful, and it's a great program. Um, and even their statistics of how well their kids do in college um, has been really um, impressive. But we're we're trying to sit down with these kids and young adults, I should say, and and really mentor them through a successful college experience, and really set them up for postgraduate success because many of them are the first in their family or first first generation in their family to go off to college. So to be able to get that mentorship from uh, someone else who's done that before them 
is really helpful. Robert, it's been uh, really delightful to speak to you today and have this discussion. I think your insights are extraordinary, um, and we really appreciate it. And really, thanks for joining us today. Great. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Perspectives, done in partnership with KPMG and part of AMOS, the Long Short Podcast. We trust you found the discussion both interesting and insightful. You can get the latest episodes by subscribing to Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Amazon Music, or streaming directly from AMA.org. Thanks for listening.